Well, John, the U.S. has plenty of vaccines. Should we make sure the world has enough too? Absolutely, but it's easier said than done. Well, let's say it at least. Welcome to Care Talk, your weekly home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Well, John, we've got a nice morality question here for you today. You know, the U.S. now has enough vaccines, but there's a lot of places in the world that have like, a, you know, one or 2% rate of vaccination. Is it the U.S.'s job to make sure that everybody has a vaccine? Well, obviously, if we've got the technology, we've got the distribution, we've got the supply, now is the time we should lead morally and not leave the rest of the world behind. I mean, I, I think it's it's sort of obvious, David. Yeah, John, there's a bunch of arguments that are used. I mean, the moral one will go right to there. Yeah, makes you feel good. Uh, self-interested, you could say, well, you know, the, if the virus is spreading elsewhere and there's these variants, eventually maybe they're going to get around the vaccine or maybe we won't be able to do business with people if their economies come to a halt. Plus, maybe we want to compete with China and Russia. So, Sorry, are you giving the arguments in favor of my position? Because I'd like to expound on that. Or are you going to somehow kind of take the immoral stance that you started? Well, John, I'll take the immoral stance. Sure, it's good to go and make sure everybody has a vaccine. But if you do that, there's a few things that happen. First of all, you're going to get in the way of the free market, which can what? help to solve this problem what? in the first place. The free mar- Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Are we talking about the pharmaceutical market, the monopolistic, highly regulated costs going up all the time pharmacy market that you have great issues with and other podcasts, but suddenly you're going to suggest a free market exists when the government protects the profits? I mean, what are you talking about? All right, John, just giving you a little red meat, John, to, to chew on and throw you off. But listen, all the time here, we're talking about social determinants of health, reducing inequality in the US, improving health equity. So I think that's, we should focus on that. Otherwise, we're going to go to India and make sure that there's actually like everybody has a a place to live and clean water and good roads and all infrastructure so that we address their social determinants of health without addressing them uh, here. I mean, I think that's one of the that's one of the problems. Oh, slow down the truck of nonsense. I mean, just stop it. I mean, the 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 longer this pandemic goes on and without vaccines it will go longer, the more mutations we will see and the greater risk not just for those places where the pandemic sort of is running without vaccinations, but even for us, even in the narrowly defined, perversely narrowly defined self-interest that you espouse, what we're talking about here will protect us. There's three great reasons here, David. The first, honestly, is enlightened self-interest. The virus is already mutating into more dangerous forms in Brazil and more more virulent forms in Britain. And that British strain has infected Vietnam. And and in Vietnam, they're seeing a combo version of Brazil plus Britain that is quite dangerous. It hasn't jumped the the barrier or the protections that we have with the current vaccines, but it will continue to mutate at scale uh, until we have tamed this beast. Secondly, this pandemic, if it continues to run with the level of vaccination that currently exists, particularly outside of the West, you're looking at a $9 trillion economic loss. That's going to be at least a trillion that's going to affect us. We're protecting your health, David. We're protecting your financial health. And finally, this is an opportunity and a risk for U.S. power. I mean, China ran ahead of us with its vaccine diplomacy, 
our brand has been damaged by Trump? John, there's a couple of things. First of all, the vaccines are so effective right now that it doesn't really matter if others get vaccinated or not. And yeah, there's a concern about the virus mutating, but you know, it's had a lot of chance to mutate. It hasn't jumped around the, the vaccine yet, and it may not. On Brazil, uh, you know, there is no virologist on this show who will agree with the notion that the current vaccines protect you from any foreseeable mutation in the future. Yeah, good, John. Well, it's good you pointed out there's no virologist on the show. Now, turning to Brazil, as we said in previous episodes, they've had terrible management, you know, and they screwed up. Now, it turns out that they reopened their economy anyway, and it's and it's growing. Now, let's get to the point about competition with China and Russia. Now, there I agree. There- what about that example of the community in northern Brazil, where they took a city and they actually immunized all, I think it's 40,000-ish residents, and the death and illness by COVID dropped by 95%. Brazil's still getting beaten up. They bet on herd immunity, which means herd pain and, and suffering. And now they've got new variants. I mean, I don't think Brazil is a model of success. Well, I don't think we're going to help them by getting them vaccines. Now, competition with China and Russia is another matter. Now, here you're right. We were slow to get out of the gates because our prior uh, prior leader didn't do a good job on that. But there's a couple of things that have happened. First of all, there's plenty of suspicion on the Chinese government, and rightfully so, for potentially covering up what happened in their in their lab. So in any case, there's concern about you know the culpability of the Chinese government uh, for the virus getting loose. And secondly, their vaccines suck compared to ours. You know, you want an you want an American vaccine. You want an mRNA vaccine, whether American or claimed as. Uh, as excuse me. Excuse me. Are the, would those be the vaccines you don't want to share? No, we'll share them. Let them buy them up. You know, cash on the barrel head, John. This is a time for generosity of spirit and for enlightened self-interest. We should be investing our assets in getting more of the vaccine supply to areas of the world that need it. And frankly, I would be well open to opening up the patents so that where countries can actually assemble the materials and get it manufactured, we should empower the rest of the world. This pandemic may feel like it's gone away in the US. It's it's raging in other parts of the world. David, you're betting against the virus and that has been a losing bet for the last year. So John, let's uh, let's move away from the moral grounds and maybe you'll get off your high horse and down onto the ground and we can talk about distribution, you know, where the rubber meets the the road or or in the case of I don't know, you know, where the with some places that don't have uh, rubber tires, I guess they use, you know, wooden wheels or something like that on the dirt roads. But let's talk about actually doing the distribution. So, I actually think you know, there was discussion about we should be distributing the doses now before everybody in the U.S. is vaccinated. I think it's actually sort of a moot point at this point. Everybody who wants a vaccine can get one, even if we distribute them. And I do think that, you know, we want to consider how we actually uh, distribute the vaccines. And I actually do think, John, this is going to surprise you. I actually think that COVAX, uh, which is a public-private partnership and a multinational effort, is actually the way to go. Wow, you're actually showing some respect for an international institution that actually requires more than just a U.S. provincialism to perform. Thank you, John. I'm going to take that as a compliment. You know, so the the post uh, World War II order has served us very well with a lot of organizations that the U.S. really helped to set up, starting with the United Nations and many international agencies, World Health Organization, and so on, that we abandoned largely under the previous regime here. Now, COVAX is an opportunity to 
create a new organization with American leadership, do something good, and actually outflank uh, China and Russia uh, in that regard. There's no way COVAX could be successful up until this point. They couldn't compete when there was a really limited supply, but they can do a good job of distributing vaccines where it's needed for your noble and moral public health uh, orientation, as opposed to just who's your buddy and an ally that you're going to give vaccine to. Yeah, no, it, it, is, it is practical, it's political, and it makes sense. So John, the, the other thing is, you know, there were, I was going to decry that there's not that many foundations involved in it because it was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but I guess now it's going to be the Bill Foundation and the Melinda Foundation. So that's two. Well, let's, uh, let, but st- stop with the this, this snide remarks for those people who actually predicted that we were not preparing for the big one. And let's acknowledge that, 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 it, it, that exponential growth um, is nothing, something that's really hard for humans to get, as is the complexity of the viral spread. I think, David, anything we can do to sort of contain this and cure it through vaccines, we should be doing. It should it should be a national priority to solve this international problem. And I'm glad that uh, even someone who's as an America first or like yourself can get behind COVAX because you think it will help America, because it will. So, John, you know, I know you like to throw in some of your little pet projects there, like breaking patents. You break my patent, I'm going to break your patent, you know, and then we'll see who's happy. We don't have patents. We, there, it, during a period of emergencies, you've got to break a little glass. And this is, a t- this is not a time when people should be standing up. We could, we could make it time limited, standing on the patent treaty to prevent countries from taking control of their own healthcare destinies. I mean, I thought you were supportive of independent entrepreneurial. Yeah, it's like government henchmen going around and going to snatch my patent. Now, true enough, there's actually a US government patent on mRNA, which Moderna hasn't licensed. And I understand they could be sued for patent infringement. That'll have to be, there's no virologist and there's no patent attorney uh, on this show either. Nonetheless, John, I think that that uh, patent breaking is a red herring and the real bottlenecks have to do with it. By the way, what is a red herring? Have you ever had herring that was red? I have not. So I, that's a distraction. You're creating a distraction with a word that's a distraction. It's like a, a, a meta something. I don't know what. But John, okay, what's whatever whatever type of herring it may be, it's a it's like a pickled herring. But the problem is is not the patents. The problem is that even if you broke your patents, you still have a shortage of know-how, supplies, distribution. We've opening. We're opening the patents. We're not breaking. Why use that violent language? We're permitting others to build the tools, to embrace the tools, to actually build their own medicine. You don't. Are you? Are you seriously standing in the way of healers trying to make their own medicine so they can save lives in their countries? Well, John, when you put it like that, you know, I will say that my. My 18-year-old son decided, you know, he had a choice between the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine or, or one of your nonsense, probably Sinovac or something too. But he decided he's going to get Moderna because he wants to support local businesses. That's, that's what he took away from the, uh, from the pandemic. So I, I don't know, John. But let's talk about the future since we don't seem to agree about the present or the past. How do we prevent future crises? Or maybe this is the end of crises and this will be the last one we're all set. The challenge with the United States government is that it, we are extremely good at dealing with any problem as long as it's right in front of us. And we have a hard time preparing for the opportunities or the challenges farther out. And I think the lesson here is 
gosh, since the Bush administration, there's a wonderful book out Michael Lewis wrote about premonition, which is all about the preparation, uh, which was difficult and, and required independent entrepreneurs within government during the, uh, the George Bush uh, uh, um, uh, administration. Um, and it talks even, go, even goes back to reference the swine flu um, uh, pan, uh, pan, near pandemic uh, during the Ford administration. And, and it points out that when you're preparing for large, unpredictable problems, people will criticize you uh, before the problem or if you avoid it. And they'll basically hang you if you, uh, from politically, if you have not, if you can't actually solve the problem that you were potentially unprepared to fund the solution for prior. And I, and I think the, the, the lesson here is that we need a FEMA for um, healthcare and for sort of health and biological safety. What the pandemic really represents is a fundamental, I think, restructuring, if we look at it the right way, of our view of what risks are. We take the risk of, of, of nation states attacking us quite seriously, of terrorist independent actors. Um, and just like after 9-11, we changed the way we thought about independent actors taking action against the United States and our citizens, we need to look at the pandemic as activating a different vector of threat, biological, and we need to prepare for it and, and, and react with long-term solutions in the same way that we dealt with terrorism post 9-11. John, I'm glad you pointed back to some of those examples from earlier administrations, because I do think that they're apropos. Uh, in addition, you've seen good responses to diseases that have emerged like um, with, with AIDS. You know, Bush did a good job with the PEPFAR program. And that included making sure that generic medications were available and that there was the mechanism not just to produce them or break patents, as you will, but also to actually distribute them, to monitor, to make sure you weren't having new resistance emerging. We can do it. And some of the technologies that have come along uh, as part of this pandemic with the mRNA in particular, um, and some approaches to make more universal vaccines, to use uh, information technology to do a better job with public health surveillance, and to build up something like COVAX give me hope that we could actually get there and establish a new regime. I don't want to say new world order uh, that is based on uh, public health and security. And if I may be so bold, that perhaps this will even eventually lead to joint action on climate change. Well, I, I, you know, now you're just trying to pull us into an, yet another uh, Care Talk episode. But I think the big difference between all of the preparation that happened and what we would do next time if we were to think about it is whether it's PPE or uh, uh, supply chain or the capacity to distribute. It's not just having the plan and the solution at hand, but being able to turn it on at scale, which means we'll be carrying as a country a little bit more infrastructure that maybe we can make dual use. But what we have to prepare for is the ability to turn on that public health infrastructure and supply in a crisis uh, within 30 to 60 days. What we prove this time is a plan without infrastructure and supplies is, is, will fail. Well, John, it sounds like you're ready. I'm ready, I guess, to pull us into the next episode of Care Talk. So for now, why don't I push us out of this episode by saying that's it for yet another edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Centrics. And David's still wrong.